All right, well, Merry Christmas. Our Savior is born. Amen? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to have you guys join us here in person on this warm Christmas morning. I was actually, earlier this week, about to rent multiple patio warmers. I thought it was going to be a very cold morning, but God said, I got this. So it's a very warm day. So we didn't need patio warmers. Uh, you know, those warmers that you see at the restaurants. But it's very wonderful. Uh, it's a beautiful day. So glad you guys could join us here in person. And we're also very glad you could join us online as well. But worshiping together as the church is not a bad way to celebrate Jesus' birth. Amen? That is not a bad way. In fact, there's probably no better way to celebrate Jesus' birth than to worship together as the church. So I'm so glad we could be here. I'm so glad you guys joined us. I know normally Christmas morning is a time to eat breakfast with family and open gifts, but you guys can do that later. <laughs> but I'm glad you guys are here. We'll open up your Bibles to Matthew 2, 1 through 21, and we're going to read our passage together, and then we're going to get into our Christmas message. But Matthew 2, 1 through 21. And unfortunately, because we are outdoors, we don't have a screen behind me where you normally see the verses. But if you're joining us online, you will see the passage on your screen at home. But Matthew 2, 1 through 21. This is God's word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And, when, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. 
she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we truly come to you on this beautiful, glorious Christmas morning, and we worship you, for you deserve all the worship. You deserve all the glory, for you humbled yourself and became one of us. And you did it for the greatest purpose that any man could imagine, that you would one day die upon a cross and take our place to be our perfect sacrifice. So Lord God, thank you so much. And thank you, Father God, that the greatest gift of Christmas is you. And so Lord God, this morning as we've gathered here and people online are gathered, I pray that you would truly, Father God, help us to receive that gift in a fresh way, in a new way again, Lord. We love you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. I can't think of a better Christmas than that, to be gathered as a church in worship of you and to receive again the gift of knowing you and being with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, this past Christmas Eve, Eve, like many of you, I had a good time with family. My family went over to my parents' place and we spent the entire day with them. My brother and his family were there as well and we had a good time. And I remember at one point during that visit, my dad and I, we got into this really lively discussion about faith and about whether the Bible is true. And this point kept coming up in the middle of the discussion. But basically, it was if there is no God and the Bible is not true, then there is simply no explanation for the universe that we live in. So I remember several times that point came up. And so my dad and I were talking about this. And we were saying how nobody, not the most brilliant scientist, no Nobel laureate, not even Elon Musk has the answer for how the universe got to where it is. If there is no God and the Bible is not true, you cannot explain how we went from the most distant, uh, distant past when there was nothing, no matter, no energy, no space, no time, to this vast, finely tuned universe we have today with human beings walking around, conscious, universal human rights that we all live by. I mean, there's no explanation for this. And I believe there never will be. And so my dad and I, we had this very interesting conversation. Now, this does not mean, therefore, that we should stop all research and exploration. In fact, the opposite is true. The biblical worldview gives us reason to continue to explore. It gave rise to modern science. It gives us actually reasons to explore our universe. I mean, just go and read the fathers of modern science and hear what they have to say. But here's the important point I'm trying to make. If there is no God and the Bible is not true, then we will ultimately never understand how we got to where we are today, how the universe came to be how it is. Well, that's not the message this Christmas morning, and I don't know who is celebrating their own way over there. <laughs> it's a little distracting, but let's pray that God will just keep distractions away. But the real message today that I want to bring up is if the Bible is not true and there is no God, then there's something else that has no explanation whatsoever. How do you explain Bible prophecy? How do you explain countless predictions in Scripture talking about what God would do one day when he sent his son to this planet? 
because the Bible is the only book on this planet that claims to know the future. There are thousands of detailed predictions about the future, many of which have come true. One theologian counted 1,817 specific prophecies in the Bible. They encompass more than 8,000 verses. There are more than 300 prophecies about Jesus alone. And so trying to explain all of these prophecies away would be like digging out of an avalanche with a spoon. It's impossible. Again, if there is no God and the Bible is not true, then how do you explain biblical prophecy? No one has given any real reason, no explanation, and most people just ignore them. But for those who don't ignore them, these prophecies, they can actually really give us compelling reasons why God is real, why he has spoken through this book, why we can trust this book, and why Jesus Christ, his son, is the true savior of the world. Biblical prophecy can give you compelling reasons for all of that. Okay, why are we gathered here this morning celebrating Jesus as the Messiah? And when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, which is our passage today, I think he was really arguing along these lines when he wrote his Gospel. That biblical prophecy can give you compelling reasons why you can trust what God has done. But in the first two chapters of his gospel, he quotes four Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus' birth and the events surrounding his birth. But we have three of them in our passage. And Matthew built his entire narrative of Jesus' birth around these different prophecies. So in the first two chapters of Matthew, you see four Old Testament prophecies, and three of them are in the passage we read. And surrounding these prophecies, we really see this beautiful story of Jesus' birth unfolding. And why did he use these prophecies? It's because he was writing for a Jewish audience. And the Gospel of Matthew was the most Jewish out of the four Gospels. And the Jews, they didn't need to be convinced of God's existence. They already believed in that. But they did need to be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, Right? And the way Matthew made his case is through Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. But these Old Testament prophecies did more than prove Jesus as the Messiah. But they also provide great insight into why Jesus was born. Why did God send Jesus into this world? Why did he have to come? So these predictions, they do more than prove that Jesus actually is the Messiah, but they give us great insight into why he came. And I believe they give us insight into the nature of Jesus' birth, into the pattern of Jesus' birth, the purpose of Jesus' birth, and then finally the reach of Jesus' birth. So there's incredible things that we can learn about Jesus' birth when we look at these prophecies. So that's what I want to do this morning. But first, the nature of Jesus' birth. There's incredible things that we learn about the nature of his birth. But Matthew quotes two Old Testament prophecies that make it clear that the nature of Jesus' birth was miraculous. It was miraculous. But Jesus' birth could not have come from anything human possible. No human means whatsoever. And this makes some people uncomfortable when they hear this. It makes other people reject Jesus' birth as a myth. These are some reasons why when you try to share this with people, they go, oh, that's just a myth. But the Bible doubles down that Jesus' birth was no ordinary birth. 
because it was humanly impossible. So if you look at Matthew 2, 1 through 2, you see this right away. But you see the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth and the events surrounding his birth. But Matthew talked about the star that appeared when Jesus was born. But Matthew 2, verse 1 and 2, he said, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So right away you see this strange event taking place where the star appeared when Jesus was born, and the star led the wise men to where Jesus was actually at. And this is very strange. Why is Matthew highlighting the star? Because Jewish people never look to the stars for guidance. In fact, in the Old Testament, astrology is specifically banned. So if you ever meet somebody or if you're ever watching TV and you get kind of drawn into astrology, the Bible is very clear. God forbids that. Okay, that is more to do with the occult than the Bible. So why does Matthew talk about this? Well, we'll come back to that later when we look at the wise men. But for now, what I want to mention, point out, is it was miraculous though. So Jesus' birth was surrounded by these miraculous events. And so something about his coming into this world was beyond human means. It was beyond a human event. But here's even something greater. But earlier in Matthew 1.22, there's an even greater evidence of the miraculous. But this is the first prophecy that Matthew gives from the Old Testament. It says in Matthew 1.22, All this took place to fulfill, meaning Jesus' birth, what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here's the first testament, uh, I'm sorry, Old Testament prophecy that Matthew quotes. It's from Isaiah 7:14. And there the word virgin, it comes from the Hebrew word Alma. Some people say, well, that doesn't really mean virgin, it actually means a young unmarried woman. That is true. But in, in the times of ancient Israel, a young, unmarried woman would be exactly the same thing as a virgin. Because to the ancient Israelite, a godly, young, unmarried woman would be nothing other than a virgin. It would be unthinkable that an unmarried young woman would be a non-virgin. And for us today to think anything otherwise says more about our culture than about their culture. So this was a virgin, no doubt. Jewish scholars, Christian scholars, they all agree this is a virgin. So the prophecy says the Messiah would be born would be born from a virgin. So right there, full stop, this is humanly impossible. And I want to encourage you, on this Christmas morning, try to hear this from the point of view of just something being reported as a fact rather than Christian tradition. Because oftentimes we hear this as just mere Christian tradition. But hear it as a report about something that happened. But imagine this young unmarried woman, Mary, or Miriam, who had never been with a man, became pregnant. Now think back to me, with me, I'm sorry, back to high school biology. But we all know from high school biology that a woman becomes pregnant, how? Okay, don't answer that question. <laughs> but a woman becomes pregnant 
when 23 chromosomes of DNA in her egg combine with 23 chromosomes of DNA from the man's seed. And when those two things combine, it forms an embryo with 46 chromosomes of DNA. So every human being has 46 chromosomes of DNA in every cell in the body. And what's more, if you want a baby boy, you need something else. But you need an X sex chromosome from the mom, and you need what? A Y sex chromosome from the dad. But Mary was a virgin. She had never been with a man. So this meant she was missing the 23 chromosomes you need from the man, and she was missing the Y sex chromosome that you need from the man. You know, I remember reading one time that there are cases of virgin births in the animal world where female animals have produced babies with no male, no partner. And that is true. But every single time those things have happened, all the babies were female. Because the female animal that gave birth had no Y chromosome to pass on. So all the babies were female. So those are cases of virgin births in the animal world. But what we're talking about here is different. Mary was a young virgin who became pregnant and gave birth to a boy without any man involved. So there's no equivalent in nature. So what am I saying? This is an unexplainable miracle, and the Bible doubles down on it. So somehow, the Bible says God overshadowed Mary with the Holy Spirit and provided the missing 23 chromosomes that should have come from a man and provided the missing Y chromosome that should have come from a man and out popped this little Jesus embryo and began growing in Mary's womb. And the Bible doubles down on this miracle, that this was humanly impossible. So many people dismiss it as a myth, but Mary knew. Mary didn't need faith to believe in the virgin birth. She's the only person in this world, in fact, in all of history, who did not need faith to know this miracle was real. Because after the angel gave the glorious news of Jesus' birth, weeks later, we're not talking about years later, just weeks later, she began to notice her body changing. So I can't imagine that as a man, but if you're a, a young woman here or a woman, you can place yourself in her shoes. But imagine that. Your body immediately begins to change. And then months later, you begin to show visible signs of being pregnant. By the way, that's not on the checklist of any woman who's about to get married. Okay, get, the, get a cake, check. Get shoes, get a venue. Look visibly pregnant when you're walking down the aisle. Check, right? That's not something that you're wanting or thinking about. And yet this was Mary's situation. She was engaged, about to get married within a year or so. And here she is now visibly looking pregnant. And every day she felt her stomach growing larger and rounder. Soon over time she began to even feel this little life inside kicking her. And so Mary knew she didn't need faith. She knew because she was the only one who knew without a doubt, I've never been with a man. At most, she was 16. Most people think she was earlier than that, 13, 14 years old. And she knew, I had never been with a man, and here I am, visibly pregnant. I am pregnant. And so God always leaves a witness like that. He always has people at the center of his redemptive work who don't need faith to know what God is doing. And why is that? It's because God, yes, he requires faith from all of us, but it's not just pure faith. But he will place people in the history of his redemptive work 
who actually know by experience these things are true and they are the witnesses to the world, to all of us. And so Mary was one of these people. She became a witness of this to the rest of the world and the apostles faithfully reported on it. But why did God double down on the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth? Well, every high point, every pivotal event in God's redemptive work is like that. God is always doubling down that what I'm about to do is humanly impossible. This saving work that I'm unfolding in human history, you cannot do. He's always doubling down on that. So that happened when Isaac was born. Isaac was going to be the father of the entire Jewish people. The lineage of the Messiah was going to come through Isaac. And who are Isaac's parents? An old, old couple. And Abraham and Sarah, Isaac's parents, knew. They didn't need faith. They knew this is impossible. They knew. And they became the witnesses to the world about this. But God doubled down on that bringing the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. They were trapped against the Red Sea. They had nowhere to go. They all knew we're going to be dead. Pharaoh is charging towards us. He's going to slaughter us all. And then they saw the Red Sea split. They knew. They didn't need faith. They walked through it. Why did God do that? So that they could be witnesses of this to the rest of the world. The resurrection of Jesus. The early apostles, yes, we believe this by faith and what they said, but they didn't need faith. They saw Jesus put to death. The Romans were good at a few things, and one thing they were good at was killing people. They were very efficient killers. They killed Jesus, they saw him die, and then they saw him rise again. And then they became witnesses of this to the whole world. And so every pivotal event in redemptive history was humanly impossible, and God doubles down on it. He makes sure that we understand, you could not have done this. Your salvation had nothing to do with you. And so why? Why is this so important? It's because God wants to stir in all of us awe and worship in the one who did bring about salvation. And I believe that's the purpose for this morning as well. God wants to stir in us awe and worship in the one who saved us. See, your salvation has nothing to do with you. There's nothing that you could have done to save yourself. And so there's a lot we can learn from the miraculous in scripture. There's a lot. But the miraculous, it exposes the hardness of our hearts. So if you're sitting here this morning, and I want to challenge you and encourage you, but if you're kind of like, hmm, I don't know about this virgin birth stuff, all these miracles. Well, in that moment, as you're thinking that, what God is doing is he's exposing your heart. He's saying, your heart is hard. Okay, I want you to see your own heart. You have a hardened heart. It exposes pride. Well, I've never seen that. Okay, that's not what I learned in school. Okay, do I see miracles under a microscope or, or in a telescope? Well, God's exposing that. He's exposing the pride in your heart. And that's a good thing, brothers and sisters, because God wants to see the things in our hearts so that he may change our hearts, right? It only, and not only does that, it also humbles us. It causes us to look to God and say, God, if these things are true, then what does that mean? Well, it means only God can save you. So then you come to him and then he's glorified. So these are the things that miracles can do. And the very fact that you have faith in God and that you've come here this morning to worship God, that is a miracle in itself. Nobody does that on a Christmas morning who doesn't know God or believe in God. The very fact that you guys are here is a miracle. Your salvation is a miracle. And so what am I saying? That miracle was not your own doing. God chose you. 
Out of millions and billions of people, he chose to save you. You were not more spiritual than others. You were not smarter, more clever. You weren't more righteous than your friends who are not believers. God simply revealed himself to you and you were saved. It was a miracle that he worked in your life. Not in a million years can you or I have the heart to come to him, the humility to come to him, the faith to worship him like we are now, not in a million years. God had to give you that kind of a heart. So that's what we see here in this miracle, is God has saved us, amen? And so this is the miracle of the Christmas story. And so many Christians, they give up in their Christian life because they grow weary. Okay, they get tired of fighting against sin. They, get, they grow tired of following God. Okay, why, why follow God? Almost everybody I know, everybody I grew up with is no longer a Christian. Okay, their Sundays are fun. Their Sundays are free. Okay, why do I have to keep going to church? They feel like they're always falling short. I mean, I just go to church and I always feel condemned, right? I always feel like I'm not measuring up. So why do that? Well, let me tell you again. What God wants to tell you, if that is the burden you're carrying, is your salvation has nothing to do with you. Okay, your walk with me and you making it all the way to the end with me and entering glory in heaven ultimately has nothing to do with you. What does the Bible say? The good work I began, I will complete. Right? Those whom he predestined and called, he will justify, he will sanctify, he will glorify. God will do it. So if you are able to receive this, this is incredibly liberating, it's incredibly encouraging. And this is front and center in the Christmas story. Okay, this is the miracle of Christmas. Again, listen, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So that's the first thing we see in this prophecy in the Old Testament, but Matthew, he gives us more. And in the next two prophecies, he gives us the pattern of Jesus' birth, the pattern. So if you look at Matthew 2.15, Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So this is the next Old Testament prophecy. It comes from Hosea 11.1. 1. Now, because King Herod was threatened by Jesus' birth, because when the wise men came, they announced, we heard that a king of Israel was born. So immediately Herod was threatened by that. And by the way, Herod was a psychopath. If you study his history, which is well written about, he killed nearly everybody in his family. He even killed his sons, his favorite wife. They all died because they threatened his throne. So that's the kind of person we're talking about. But Herod was threatened by Jesus' birth, and then he became hell-bent on killing Jesus. And so God told Joseph and Mary, take their baby and flee to Egypt. And then after Herod died, God called them out of Egypt back to Israel. And this is where we get this prophecy. From out of Egypt, God called his son. So right away, who does this look like? What parallels do you see here? Well, this has obvious parallels with Moses fleeing Egypt, first alone, and then later he went back to Egypt, and then he led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. So God twice called Moses and then Israel out of Egypt as his sons. Right? So there's a lot of parallel there. But then Matthew gives us a more obvious parallel with Moses in the next Old Testament prophecy. 
So remember, Matthew, he's just walking through Old Testament prophecies in the first two chapters. His whole narrative about Jesus' birth is built around these prophecies. So here's the next prophecy, Matthew 2, 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were there, two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So that prophecy comes from Jeremiah 31.15, which Matthew said was fulfilled by Herod. So King Herod wanted the baby Jesus dead. No one could rival his throne. So he was using the wise men to try and locate the baby. But when Herod realized the wise men found the baby, but then never came back to tell him, he became furious, and then he decided to take matters into his own hand. And he figured, okay, I don't know where this baby is, but I'm going to throw a big net, a wide net to try to kill him. So he decided, I'm going to kill every baby boy in Bethlehem up to two years old. So imagine the horror of this. But he dispatched soldiers to Bethlehem, a small town. And by the way, some scholars, they say, you know what, this is a myth because nobody ever wrote about it except the Bible. Well, my argument against that is no other historian probably talked about it in history is because Bethlehem was barely a 1,000 people, a very, very small little town. And at most, how many little boys were living in that town? Maybe 20. So at the most, about 20 little boys were killed on that day. And that's terrible. That's a horrific tragedy. But Herod was doing this stuff all the time, right? He was killing tens of thousands of people. This was barely even registering on people's minds. And so he sent these soldiers to kill these baby boys. But fortunately, God saved the baby Jesus and they escaped. And through this homicidal act, Herod unknowingly fulfilled this prophecy. But again, it says here, Rachel is heard weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so there's a reaping in Ramah and by the way, Ramah is not Bethlehem. But Ramah is the place where traditionally Rachel was supposed to be buried. So there's this weeping heard from Rachel's grave. That's what it's talking about. But then other Bible scholars say, well, Rachel wasn't really buried in Ramah. She was buried on the way to Bethlehem. So there's some ambiguity there. And I think Matthew is playing on that ambiguity. So whether Rachel was really buried in Ramah, she's crying from her grave or she was actually really buried near Bethlehem, which is where this horrific thing took place. Matthew is saying this fulfilled the prophecy. Rachel, who represented the mothers of Israel, she was crying and weeping because her babies were lost. They are no more. And so this fulfilled prophecy. And so these stories are very vivid, but here's the point. What does this sound like again? So earlier we saw how God called his son out of Egypt. That sounded like Moses. Well, what does this story sound like? Well, this has striking parallels with Moses again. His birth and his escape. Because when Moses was born, there was another homicidal maniac, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh decided to commit a, a very similar act where he wanted all the Jewish boys killed at birth. Because during that time, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and they were growing very numerous, very strong. And so Pharaoh felt threatened. 
very similar to Herod. So he wanted to kill all the baby boys. And yet God protected Moses like he protected Jesus. So what I'm saying here is the comparisons couldn't be more striking. And here it gives us a pattern to Jesus' birth. There's a pattern. So not only was Jesus' birth supernatural and miraculous, but there was a pattern to it. It looked like something else. And through that, God is trying to tell us something about Jesus' birth. There's something very important God is trying to tell us. But as we look at Jesus' birth, God is saying, look at Moses and look at what Moses did and who Moses was because Jesus is somebody similar. Okay, let me say it like this. Jesus is the new Moses and he has come to lead Israel through a new exodus. That is what God is saying. God is literally saying a new Moses and a new Israel has arrived. A new exodus has come. So Jesus came to complete the work that Moses began. You know, a few weeks ago during community group, we actually talked about this, but there's a picture of this in the Gospels, a different picture. But at one point in Jesus' ministry, he went high up on the mountain and he became transfigured. He became glorious like nothing else. And then this is what it says, Matthew 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus because Jesus was the greater Moses. He was the greater Elijah. So have you ever wondered in that story, why why did Jesus, after being transfigured, have Moses and Elijah next to him? What is that about? Was that just a party? Was he just talking to them? You know, he wanted to just kind of like make conversation. I mean, what is going on here? Well, that's a very symbolic event where Jesus was showing the disciples, look, I am the new Moses. I am the new Elijah. I came to complete the work that they began. And so in the very same way, this story of his birth is pointing to the exact same thing. God is saying, look at the birth of my son. It's exactly like the birth of Moses. And Moses was who? He was the great deliverer. He freed the people of Israel from slavery, right? And brought them into the promised land. Or that's what he was supposed to do. And yet he didn't finish that work, but yet yet Jesus came and in the fullness of time, he completed the work that Moses began. He's the greater Moses who brought the greater Exodus. But why was it so much greater? Well, the reason why is because this Exodus that Jesus brought was not to be freed from some oppressive empire. That's what some of the disciples thought. The Messiah is here now. He's going to free us now from Rome, the oppression of a different nation. That's what the Jews in Matthew's time would have thought when they read this. But God was like, no, there's something else Jesus came to do. There's a new exodus, a greater exodus. So what did Jesus come to free us from? What is he going to deliver us from? Well, this brings us to the next point, which is the purpose of Jesus' birth. The purpose. It's so beautiful how Matthew unfolds this. But look at Matthew 2, 5 through 6. It says here, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. So Herod came to the scribes and the priests and said, okay, tell me, where is this king supposed to be born, right? He wanted to kill him. And then they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd 
my people Israel. Now here we have the fourth and final prophecy in our passage. This comes from Micah 5.2. And it gives us the location of Jesus' birth. The Messiah, when he comes, would be born in Bethlehem. But why is this such an important point? The New Testament repeats this point again and again. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Matthew mentions it several times. He mentions it through the prophecy of Micah 5.2. He records it in the mouth of the chief priests and scribes. He mentions it again later when the wise men get there. But he was born in Bethlehem. John the Apostle also mentions it in his gospel in a different story. John 7.41. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? So in that story, that was actually used as an accusation against Jesus. Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's from Nazareth, Galilee. Isn't he supposed to be from Bethlehem? So why is this point raised again and again that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? What's the significance? And to answer that, we need to get help from our Messianic Jewish friends, especially the friends we have in One for Israel. This is a great ministry where these Jewish believers are really unpacking just amazing things in their Old Testament. They know it better than us. And they're connecting it to Jesus because they're believers in Jesus. But they say, yes, Micah 5.2 prophesied Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. But it's more specific than that. It's Bethlehem Ephrathah. That's where Messiah would be born. Micah 5.2 makes this clear. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. And so what is this? What is Ephrathah? Ephrathah was just a region within Bethlehem. You know how a city has different areas? It has like an industrial zone, like kind of a business center. Well, Ephrathah was the agricultural zone of Bethlehem. These are where the shepherds' fields were. These are where the crops were grown. It was only one Roman mile away from Bethlehem. And Micah 4.8 actually gets even more specific than Ephrathah. But Micah 4.8 prophesies that Messiah would be born in Ephrathah Migdal Edel. Ephrathah Migdal Edel. So now it's getting very, very narrow. If you want to find the Messiah, this is where he's going to be born. Bethlehem Ephrathah Migdal Edel. And what is that? Migdal Edel a translation of that is the tower of the flock. In your English Bible, Michael 4a probably simply says tower of the flock. In the Hebrew, is Migdal Adel. But the Messiah, when he finally comes in the fullness of time, you will find him born in Bethlehem, in Ephrathah, the agricultural zone, and within that zone, in Migdal Adel, the tower of the flock. And so why? Why is that so important? And if you think about how little we know about when Jesus was born, and how many of you guys know Jesus was not born on Christmas? <laughs> this was a pagan holiday. Christians long ago adopted this pagan holiday as Jesus' birthday. They used it as an evangelistic tool. That's fine. But Jesus was most likely born during the springtime, between spring and summer, during the festival of booths. He was not born during Christmas. So we know very little about when he was born. But where? This is very specific, repeated multiple times. The Savior, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, at the Tower of the Flock. And what is that? Okay, why? Why is that so important? 
Well, that location, that specific place, were the fields of King David. And those fields were set aside by King David for a very special purpose. But throughout David's life, especially later in his life, he had such a heart to build a temple for the, king, uh, for the God that he worshipped. He really wanted to build a temple for God. But because he was a man of war, he had shed uh, much blood. God told him, you will not build a temple for me, but your son will instead. So David, knowing that, prepared everything he possibly could for that temple to be built one day by his son. So he got all the building materials together and he got everything together, all the money, all the resources. And in addition to that, he knew once the temple is finished, there will be daily sacrifices in that temple. And not only that, but once a year in the Holy of Holiest days, within the Holy of Holy in the temple, there will be the great sacrifice that will take place. And so knowing that, David made preparations for the sacrifice. How? By setting aside special fields from his own ancestral homeland. Because he was from Bethlehem. This is where he grew up. This is where his family was. But he set aside his own ancestral homeland as the special fields where those special lambs would be raised. Lambs without blemish. That's where they're going to be watched after. In fact, Jewish scholars say this was the most looked after fields in all of Israel. Okay, there were no fields in Israel looked after more than these fields because these fields would hold the lambs for the holiest sacrifice that would happen in the temple. So unblemished sheep that would be used by the priests would be raised right there in Bethlehem Ephrathah at the Tower of the Flock. And these were not just any sacrifice, but again, these were the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year. So because David had this in his heart, he offered this land for Israel to raise the lambs there. And the tower of the flock at Bethlehem, Ephrathah, is where the sheep would be raised. And Jewish scholars, they said that rabbinic tradition, they actually say that on the high holy day, priests would come from Jerusalem and they would actually come to Bethlehem Ephrathah and they would examine the sheep. And then once a year, they would select the sheep that they would take for the slaughter. And guess where they would put the sheep for inspection? Okay, this is written in Jewish tradition. And they don't even believe in Jesus. This is just their tradition. They said these priests would take the most unblemished lamb they could find in Bethlehem Ephrathah at the Tower of the Flock and place the sheep in a manger. That's where the sheep would go. And they would examine the sheep, make sure it was a perfect lamb with no blemish, no broken bones, nothing wrong, no defects. And then once it received the approval, they would swaddle that lamb. They would swaddle it. And then they would carry that lamb all the way back to Jerusalem rather than lead it on the ground. And why? In order to protect it, to make sure that it would remain unblemished. And so what does that sound like, brothers and sisters? Isn't that exactly what the angels declared to the shepherds. And what shepherds are we talking about? Are they just run-of-the-mill shepherds, just any shepherds? These were the exact shepherds that were at Bethlehem Ephrathah, Tower of the Flock, the shepherds that were in charge of the most holy lambs that were being raised for the sacrifices once a year. These are the very shepherds that the angels appeared to and said, there is great uh, news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And here's the sign out of the mouth of the angels of heaven. Okay, this is not Matthew writing this. 
the angel said this to those shepherds in that spot, looking over those lambs that were going to be sacrificed on the holy of holy, the holiest day. They said, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Just like those lambs that you put in the manger and you swaddle. You know very well what this is. And so when the angels declare that, I mean, this is just bursting with meaning. Do you see what God is doing here? So these were the same shepherds that the angels announced the birth of our Savior. There's so much more going on here than, oh, yeah, Jesus is so humble. That's what we talk about. That's where we end. Oh, he's just so humble, right? He was born in a barn. Yay, Jesus, you're so humble. And God is saying, yes, he is humble. But there's so much more than that. Don't you see? I came and I gave you my son as one of these lambs that will be slaughtered one day. Jesus is the only person who was ever born knowing he was going to die. He was born to die. So on the day of his birth, he was laid in a manger just like those other lambs. And he was swaddled just like those other lambs. And then 33 years later, he would be led to Jerusalem just like those lambs. And then he would be hung on a cross for us to atone for our sins. So this is the great news of our Savior, brothers and sisters. You need to understand what Jesus did. You need to understand why we gather here every Christmas morning. And so... Just think about Mary and Joseph and think about how difficult it must have been for them to go all the way to Bethlehem. Okay, Mary is nine months, maybe nine months and, I don't know, nine weeks pregnant. I mean, she is so pregnant. She's about to give birth. And then suddenly they have to take this unexpected journey all the way to Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Why? Right? Why there? Well, because there's a massive census going on. And so here they are just stressed out. They were preparing to have the child at home. They were getting everything ready. And yet God uprooted them, had them go all the way down to Bethlehem from where they were. That was a long journey, very treacherous. There would have been bandits on the way. It would have been freezing cold, all kinds of things. And yet they had to endure all of that so that they could go to Bethlehem. Why? So that one day God could announce to all of us, look, I gave you my son as a sacrificial lamb for you. And so do you see that? Do you see how so many times we don't know what's going on in our lives and we're confused and we're struggling? And so even on this Christmas morning, there may be things in our lives where we're stressed, things that we don't understand. I'm being uprooted from certain things. Things that I expected to happen, they're not happening. Things are changing in my life. I don't know what's going on. And yet, above it all, God is sovereignly guiding it all to beautifully unfold his redemptive plan. This is yet another point in the Christmas story. See, if Mary and Joseph didn't obey God, if they didn't yield themselves to God's sovereign work, they wouldn't have ended up in Bethlehem. We wouldn't have had this beautiful illustration. And yet, that's what God was doing, and they submitted, and here we are now. So this is the third thing that we see, is that there was an incredible purpose to Jesus' death and to his birth. That he was born to die. He was the true atonement for our sins. But that's not all, and we're going to close with this, but there was also a reach of Jesus' birth, the reach of Jesus' birth. So if you look at Matthew 2, 9 through 11, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east 
came to Jerusalem. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so here we get the final part of the story, which is the wise men who came from the east. Most people believe that to be Babylon. But let me ask you, why include this, right? Why talk about these wise men who probably weren't Jewish? They might have been, but they probably weren't. From Babylon, they walked all this way, came all the way to Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Okay, the star led them. They arrived at this location to worship the King Jesus, the baby King Jesus. Okay, why include that? And, and especially include this weird, bizarre event about this star that rose when Jesus was born and it led the wise men all the way to where he was at. Okay, why include that? Especially when in the Old Testament we know that astrology is banned. The Jewish people never look to the stars for anything. Okay, that is not a part of God's will. And so why do that? Well, I believe what God is trying to say here is, look, I have given you my son. He is the savior of the world. He is the atoning lamb for the world that I'm giving. But it's not just for Israel. But I want to make it clear, in the very story of my son's birth, there is hope for the whole world, right? That is what God is saying. There is hope for the entire world. And so why would these wise men in Babylon come all the way to see this baby Jesus? Let me ask you this. Where did they even hear about this baby Jesus? Could there have been some Jewish leader over the wise men in Babylon who might have mentioned this, these prophecies about a coming Messiah? Could there have been some Jewish person in Babylon? Can you think of anybody like that? who was a wise man himself, but he was also in charge of all the wise men in Babylon? Could there have been anybody like that? Hmm, I don't know. Daniel? <laughs> Could Daniel be that person? I don't know, maybe. Okay, we don't know for sure. But how did these wise men from Babylon even know about this prophecy? Okay, could it have been Mordecai? Maybe Mordecai, he was out over in that direction. Whether it was Daniel, whether it was Mordecai, whether it was Nehemiah, somebody else, we know that somewhere... They heard that prophecy, and they knew because God's spirit was working in them. Okay, this promise is not just for the Jews, but it's for all of us. It's for all of us. Somehow, this king of the Jews that's going to be born is going to bring hope to all of us. And so he were, here we are. They, they followed this star. And this star was not some star from astrology. It wasn't anything like that. But I believe Matthew includes it because this was yet another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But in Numbers 24, 17, this is a prophecy about the Messiah's birth. It says, I see him, but not now. Interesting, right? Balaam, this was a false prophet, but the spirit overcame him and he began to give true prophecy. But Balaam said, by the spirit of God, I see him, the Messiah, but not, but not now. He's not here yet, but I see him. I behold him, but not near. Again, I could see him, I could behold him, but he's not close. He's far away still. He's, he's, he's yet to come. And then he says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So here, this false prophet, overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, said, I see the Messiah. Your Messiah is going to come. And it's interesting that a Gentile said this. But your Messiah is going to come, and I see him like a star. It's going to rise. 
right? I see him like a star. And some Jewish scholars actually say this word for star is a synonym for the name of the Messiah. So okay, whatever interpretation you have, this is talking about the Messiah. So when you go back to Matthew, I believe Matthew is bringing this in going, you know what, you guys, I just want to make it absolutely clear. Everything you're reading, everything that you've heard about, this was prophesied. This was prophesied. God, out of great love and great grace, sent his son as a sacrificial lamb, literally born in the same spot that thousands of lambs before him were sacrificed year after year after year after year as a symbolic representation of forgiveness of sin, a symbolic representation of atonement. But God said, I'm going to do away with that once and for all. I'm going to send my son. And then he said, I'm going to make it clearer than even that. There will be a star that rises up, and that star will guide you to where that sacrifice will come, right? where I'm going to provide this sacrifice. And so this is the Christmas story, brothers and sisters. And so in close, this is what I want to encourage you. But do you see yourself in this story? See, for me, as I kind of read this earlier this week, as I kind of looked through this passage several times, I see myself in the wise men, not because I'm wise, but because I'm a Gentile. I live in a faraway land, not of Babylon, but Riverside. Yeah, I've heard of the Messiah, okay? I don't see him now. I, I don't behold him. He's not near. He's kind of far away, but I see him in here, just like the wise men. And just like the wise men, I desire to go see him. I want to worship him. I want to offer him gifts. I don't have frankincense and myrrh. I don't have spices. My wife has some spices. I don't have any spices, but, but I want to offer gifts to my Lord. What is that? My life. My life. So I want to encourage you on this Christmas day, what are you offering? Right? Don't, don't just come here to say, yes, I did church on Christmas day. But what are you offering your king? Right? Are you offering your life? Here's a different way to say it. What are you living for? What are you living for? You know, this is something else that came up this past week when I was with my family, but the day of our appointment to meet God is coming, and it's coming sooner than later. See, almost nearly every one of us here, we're thinking, oh, that's decades and decades away. No guarantees. There's no guarantee. The day of your appointment and my appointment to meet God is coming very quickly. So what are you doing? What am I doing? Let's, let's come to the king. Okay, let's offer our gifts to him, which is our very life. Amen? Okay, let's bow with, before him in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord. We, we just come before you right now, Lord. And we worship you, Lord, on this Christmas morning. And we want to declare, Lord, that you are awesome. That you are beyond awesome. We, we just can't explain these things we can't even understand these things yes there are always people majority of people who will look at these things by foolishness what kind of myth is this with random coincidences i mean what is that am i going to build my life on some coincidences but that's the heart of a darkened mind but father but to those that you have revealed yourself lord this is eternal life these are the glories of heaven. And Lord God, you know, you know the hindrances this week to even get this message out and even moments ago, the distractions. Father God, even right now, I pray that you would remove any distraction. 
that, Lord Jesus, that your word would not return void. Lord, you are an awesome God. So, Lord Jesus, please reveal yourself. Please show yourself in a fresh new way on this Christmas morning. Please show yourself, Father. Jesus, show us again in a fresh new way what you did for us. The amazing prophecies and how you fulfilled every single one. And all of it points to you being born to die so that we may be saved one day. So, Lord God, that's why we're here. That's why we worship you. And, Lord God, no matter what's happening in our lives, no matter what chaos, no, no matter what craziness, Lord, you're at work. Your redemption continues. So, Lord God, we worship you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's come before the Lord on this Christmas morning. It's getting pretty warm. But I want to ask again, what are you going to bring to the king, to the baby Jesus? He's now grown. He's up in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. But what are you going to bring to the king of kings? Okay, are, are, you, are you giving your life? Okay, that's a good question to ask every now and then. What am I doing with my life? You know, sometimes our lives can kind of drift, right? Even for those who know the truth, we drift. But let's come before him right now and let's just spend a moment offering ourselves to him again. Yes, Lord, I want to give my life to you again. I want to offer my life to you in a fresh new way. My day of standing before you is coming very soon, very soon. Thank you, Lord.